Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 and also Romans chapter 8. I do believe the scripture will be up on the screen uh, this morning. I do like the idea, though, of you having your Bibles with you and turning uh, to these texts. I'll leave that up to you, though. Exodus chapter 32 and Romans chapter 8 will be uh, the, the scripture text for today. The sermons have been a bit long lately, haven't they? Um, I'm always mindful of that. I think sometimes I'm too mindful of it. Um, I am trying to get through the book of Exodus. You can see that, right? We're taking large portions of Scripture. I I think they they preach well as a a unit, so I'm not dividing up these larger texts. Uh, It won't be like this forever. um, But I think it is important for us to consider, for example, Exodus 32 in its entirety. It's one story. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and burnt, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, remember Moses is still up on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written, The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was with the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of, cry, of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained to the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Let us go now to the New Testament and read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. This story in Exodus 32 regarding Israel's worship of the golden calf and the consequences that fell upon them as a result of their rebellion is very important. The story is rather shocking, isn't it? We're moving along in the narrative of the book of Exodus. Uh, Glorious things were showed to Israel. Uh, Moses had just received instructions up on the mountain regarding the tabernacle and the worship that was to be given to God through the priesthood of Israel. But he comes down the mountain to find this. It's a shocking story. It's, It's almost unbelievable to think that Israel, having been redeemed from Egypt, led and fed in the wilderness and spoken to by God at Sinai, would so quickly break the terms of the covenant they had just entered into. I want you to think of all that the Lord had done for Israel. Consider the mighty works He performed to deliver them from the Egyptians. Think of the way in which He led Israel in the wilderness to provide for all of their needs. Consider the law that He spoke to them. Consider the terms of the covenant that He made with them. The promise of blessing for obedience and the threat of curse for disobedience. And do not forget the response of the people when the covenant was confirmed. After Moses read the book of the covenant in the hearing of the people, they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. That is Exodus 24, verse 7. As I've said, it's rather shocking to consider all that the Lord had done for this people and to see that within 40 days of that covenant being confirmed, the people of Israel, or at least many within Israel, entered into full rebellion against God. I think perhaps the most surprising thing of all in this story is that Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest of Israel, was pressured to comply with their idolatrous cravings. The story is truly shocking, but it is also very, it's also a very important part of the story of redemption that is being told here in the book of Exodus. I, I view this episode as a kind of wake-up call or reality check in the story that is being told here. Again, I ask you to consider all of the marvelous things the Lord did for the Hebrews to redeem them and consider especially the very glorious things that happened out at Mount Sinai when the Lord entered into covenant with Israel. The people saw God's glory manifest. They heard His voice. They were confronted with His law. The 70 were even given a glimpse into heaven. A covenant was cut. And Moses was invited up into the presence of God to receive further instructions. These were very unusual and exceedingly marvelous events. But these events that followed, the events surrounding the idolatrous worship of the golden calf or young bull, clarify some things. I think in this story we learn a great deal about the sinfulness of man, about the grace of God, And also the nature of the covenant that God entered into with Israel in the days of Moses. And in fact, I would like to consider this story with you today under these three headings. One, the sinfulness of man revealed. Two, the grace of God revealed. And three, the nature of the covenant that God entered into Israel in the days of Moses revealed. Let us first of all consider what this passage reveals concerning the sinfulness of fallen man. And above all, I want you to notice our propensity 
towards idolatry. What is the first of the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters? You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. This means that we are to have no other gods at all. Only the Lord is to be honored as God. And what is the second of the Ten Commandments except this? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Israel was not unaware of these commandments for the Lord had spoken these words to them at Sinai. You remember this. Uh, These Ten Commandments were spoken to Israel. It was after that that they pleaded that no further word be spoken to them, but that Moses serve as a mediator. But they heard these Ten Commandments. They heard, of course, these first two. In fact, the prohibition against idolatry was also reiterated to them through Moses. Exodus 20, verses 22 through 24 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. So this prohibition against any form of idolatry Uh, was even reiterated to the people of Israel. They knew these things. God told them up front that they were not to have this this mixed form of worship where they worshipped Yahweh, but in the way that the nations did. It was forbidden for Israel. They knew all of this, and again they replied, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. But here, not more than 40 days after the covenant was confirmed, they are found rebelling against God in a most radical way by violating the first and second commandments of God's moral law. Now, how did it happen? 32.1 tells us that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where what has become of him. I want you to notice a few things about this opening verse. One, it was the people of Israel who decided that they wanted idols. I do not think that we should take this to mean that it was all of the people. Uh, Later we will learn that there were some who were guilty and some who were innocent in the matter. The ones who were guilty were judged, both by the priests in a direct way, but also by the sending of the plague upon Israel from the Lord. But I think it is right for us to imagine a very large number of people. Uh, Certainly, it was a a mass of people large enough to pressure Aaron to comply. And this is the second thing that I want you to notice. Aaron, the high priest of Israel, was complicit in this idolatrous rebellion. He did not lead the way, but was pressured to make idols. When the text says the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, I think it is right for us to imagine them putting great pressure on him so that he probably feared for his life. Up, make gods for us who shall go before us. They they demanded this of Aaron and then Aaron complied. He instructed them to make to make gods, uh, he instructed them to take gold earrings from their wives, their sons and, and, and daughters. He had this gold melted down and crafted into a golden image The text says a calf. It was likely in the form of a young bull. And after Aaron did this dastardly deed, 
The leaders from among the people said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I think it is important to notice this. That Aaron, Aaron crafted this idol, and I think he had certain intentions. That it be Yahweh who would be worshipped through these images. But as soon as he produced this golden calf, what did the people do? What did the people say? These are your gods. Notice gods is here in the plural, O Israel. And they even attribute the deliverance from Egypt to these gods. So Yahweh, though it may not have been Aaron's intention, was denied. Yahweh was forgotten by the people. Uh, Aaron may have desired, desired that Yahweh be worshipped through this image. But the people ran headlong into idolatrous worship. The third thing that I want you to notice is the motivation behind the rebellion, namely the desire for something visible, something tangible and controllable to represent God. The demand, make us gods who shall go before us, must be interpreted in light of what we learned earlier about Israel being led out of Egypt by the Lord as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Israel had been without that pillar while encamped at Sinai. There they saw the glory of God manifest on the top of Mount Sinai. There they heard His voice, and there they trembled. I think this is very significant. There they heard God's voice, they saw His glory manifest, and what did they do except tremble before Him? They requested that no further word be spoken to them, but that Moses would intercede between them and God from now on. Moses was then called up on the mountain... There the Lord spoke to him and gave him instructions for the building of the tabernacle, among other things. And he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. The people grew impatient. We should remember that these people, most of them Hebrews, were born and raised in Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped many gods and they crafted idols to represent them. And here we see how affected the Hebrews were by the religious practices of the Egyptians at this moment. Many of them reverted back to what was comfortable for them. Yahweh, notice, made them very uncomfortable. Yahweh made them uncomfortable. The mediation of Moses brought them some comfort, but he was now missing. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of of him, they said. And so they pressured Aaron the priest to make a little idol for them, something visible, something tangible, Something controllable. They could not control Yahweh. He was a consuming fire to them. He led the people of Israel according to His will. I want you to notice this. Yahweh led the people of Israel into the wilderness according to His will. The people of Israel had no control over this Yahweh. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud went where it wished. The Lord led Israel according to His will and He made the people of Israel quite uncomfortable in the process. And here is the thing about idolatry, brothers and sisters. Idols can be controlled. Idols are comfortable for sinful men and women to worship, for they can have some control over the idol. Notice they say to Aaron, make gods for us. And so... Aaron did that very thing. He took the gold, he crafted an idol. And, 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 and here is the thing with idols. If you are the one who crafts the idol, then you can also direct that idol to do what you wish that idol to do. 
the, the priests who craft them can then control them. I, I want you to think about the golden calf. The golden calf was not self-existent. Aaron made it. He made it out of pre-existing material, gold. He formed and fashioned it for the people, and so that means that he as priest could also control it on behalf of the people. Aaron, Moses is gone. We do not know what happened to him, and we are finished with Yahweh. You are our priests now, and we would prefer it if you would make us gods. Where shall we go next, Aaron? Where does the God which you have made say we should go next? Where will he lead us? You can see how this works. Now all of a sudden, Aaron would be in position, in a position as this priest who made the God to decide where the people of Israel would go next. They were much more comfortable with this little golden calf than they were with Yahweh. I hope that you can see the difference, brothers and sisters, between Yahweh and this golden calf, and between Moses, the humble and faithful servant in God's house, and Aaron in this moment. I trust that you are also able to see why idols are so very appealing to sinful men and women. Idols can be manipulated and controlled. They are not threatening, for they are not the self-existent creator, but the creation of sinful man. Now, the people were very wicked to rebel against God in this way. But the sin of Aaron is particularly disturbing. Wouldn't you agree? Granted, the idol was not Aaron's idea, but he was pressured by the people to compromise. I'm sure that he feared the people. He thought they were going to overrun him and kill him. And so he gave them what they wanted. Again, I think verse 5 is very interesting. It reveals something about Aaron's intentions. When Aaron saw this, uh, that is, when he saw the people take the idol he made and run headlong into polytheistic idolatry, claiming that these were the gods who brought them out of Egypt, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That is Exodus 32.5. What is going on here? Here is what I think is going on. Aaron compromised. Aaron had this intention that it would be Yahweh who was worshipped. After all, how could this people deny Yahweh after everything that they had just witnessed uh, uh, that was done by him? So he had this intention that Yahweh be worshipped But through this calf, through this young bull, through this idol, after all the people were so used to this way of worship, we can just give them a little bit of what they want, you see. It will help them. They're struggling in the faith, aren't they? They do not want to follow this this God, this Yahweh, who is invisible to them, who manifests himself in such terrifying ways, who they have no control over. And so we will... We will condescend to their weakness, Aaron decides. We will give them a little idol and that will placate them. That will bring some comfort to them. But at least it will still be the Lord who is worshipped. What do the people do? Thanks for the idol, Aaron. And then they turn and make this announcement to the congregation. Behold your gods who led you out of the land of Egypt. You know, Yahweh is forgotten. And I think in verse 5 what Aaron is doing here is he's trying to, to scramble to to regain some sense of control, to to regain some sort of devotion to Yahweh. And so he builds this altar and declares that on the next day there will be be, uh, the the worship of of, of Yahweh at this altar. But what do they do? They do not worship Yahweh. Uh, They offer up sacrifices. They sit down to eat and drink and they rise up to play, meaning that they engage in all sorts of corrupt deeds as they give themselves over to these idolatrous practices. I have two observations to make concerning the sinfulness of man. One, fallen men and women are prone to idolatry. 
That there is a God who is to be worshipped and served is plain to all who have reason. Yes, some have so degenerated into sin and folly that they deny the existence of God altogether. But in the history of the world, this is very rare. The vast majority of people can plainly see that there is a God and that He is to be worshipped. But instead of worshipping the one true God, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen, says Paul in Romans 1.25. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23, reflects upon this very episode that we are considering here in Exodus chapter 32. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Do you hear it? The people made a choice. They said, We would rather worship this image than have to deal with Yahweh, who is so glorious and powerful. So they made an exchange when they did this at Horeb. They forgot God, is what Psalm 106 says. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So sinful men and women are prone to idolatry, They know they are to worship God, but they would much prefer to worship a God that they have crafted, one that they can control, rather than submit themselves to the one true God who has made them. He is not a God to be controlled, but the one who controls all things, to whom we must bow the knee. And so, Christian, I may ask you this by way of application. Is there any form of idolatry in your heart? Have you, in any way, rebelled against God's revelation of Himself in history, in Christ, in the Scriptures, to make an image of God for yourself, one that you are comfortable with, and one that you can control. I doubt that any of you have crafted for yourself a physical idol, but I'm afraid that many who profess faith in Christ in this world have crafted for themselves an image of God in their mind and in their heart that is something far less than what God reveals Himself to be in the pages of Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, idolatry is a serious threat even to us today. In fact, I would argue that the church today, the modern church today, has a major problem with idolatry as God's revelation of Himself in the Scriptures is often rejected. And instead, men and women will craft for themselves a God that they are simply more comfortable with, one that they control one that they do not have to bow the knee to entirely. In fact, the Scriptures warn us against the danger of idolatry even within the New Covenant era. James 1.21 says, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I, I say that this has to do with idolatry because it is commanding us to take this posture, the posture of Moses, the posture of the faithful ones within Israel under the Old Covenant, that we would humble ourselves before God, that we would receive with this spirit of humility God's Word, God's self-revelation, instead of deciding for ourselves who God is and how He is to be worshipped and served. I do pray that we would be humble before the Lord as we receive His most holy Word. My second observation concerning the sinfulness of man is this. Religious leaders must be especially careful not to allow idolatry 
to slip into their own hearts, nor into the midst of God's people. Aaron compromised out of fear. Aaron compromised out of fear. Or perhaps he compromised thinking that he could better control Israel through the idol that he made. Whatever the motive was for him, the results were truly devastating for the people. And though Aaron tried to preserve himself by playing this game of compromise, he ended up looking very foolish in the end, didn't he? When Moses came down the mountain, he confronted Aaron, saying, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Notice the responsibility is placed on Aaron. It is placed upon him here and at the very end of our text. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we do not know what has come of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and, threw, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You laughed when I read it for the first time because it is so silly. But you could see how foolish Aaron looks here as he, he compromised um, in his attempt to placate the people. He compromised in his attempt to control them. Um, but he himself was guilty And the results were disastrous, I do think, that many pastors today who serve within uh, the New Covenant Church of God uh, feel the same pressure also. How many pastors have I heard say things like this? Well, I know the Scriptures teach this concerning God. But if I say it, if I say it, if I preach this to the people, they'll leave. They will not listen to me. And therefore, great truths about God Truths concerning, for example, His sovereignty over salvation are denied within the church. They're they're suppressed within the church. And God is dishonored. And I think through this sin here, this one in particular, the, the refusal to preach that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, uh, opens the door for all forms of idolatry amongst the people of God in the New Covenant era. It is disastrous for God's people and also the leaders of God's people end up looking very foolish in the end. In the end, they will stand before the Lord to give an account. More could certainly be said regarding what this passage reveals concerning the sinfulness of man and our propensity towards idolatry. But for the sake of time, let us now turn our attention to the grace of God. For this passage does certainly reveal a great deal concerning God's grace. It was the Lord who made the announcement to Moses that the people had fallen into idolatry. He sees all, does He not? The Lord had finished giving instructions to Moses up on the mountain when He said, Go down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting how the Lord phrases that? He He puts responsibility upon Moses. And the Lord continued speaking to Moses, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. What an interesting proposal the the Lord makes to, to Moses. I'm going to pour out my wrath upon this people. I'm going to do away with them entirely, and I'm going to start fresh with you, Moses. Notice a few things about this portion of the story. One, the Lord referred to Israel as your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, as He speaks to Moses. The Lord is here implying that He would be right to disown Israel for their sin. You know, 
Of course, it was the Lord who redeemed them. The Lord knew this, but he puts it in this way, I think, to to communicate the great breach that had taken place between he and the people of Israel. The covenant that he had made with them had already been broken. Uh, So God would have been right to disown them. Two, the Lord noted how quickly Israel had turned out of the way that he had commanded them. In other words, they had already broken the terms of the covenant he had made with them. It would have been right, therefore, for the curses of the covenant to befall them. The Lord said this to Israel from the outset, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations, among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you hear the conditional aspect of the old Mosaic covenant here? If you obey me. If you keep the covenant that I am making you, then with you, then you will be my treasured possession. What is implied in that positive statement of, of the blessings of the covenant? What is the thing implied except the negative? If you do not, if you do not obey me, if you break the terms of the covenant, then I will cast you off. Indeed, that is stated clearly elsewhere in the Old Testament that the Lord had this right. The Old Covenant was a covenant of works. God would have been right to cut off the people. God would have been right to pour out His judgment upon them based upon the terms of the old Mosaic covenant. Three, the Lord identified idolatry as the sin and also spoke to the condition of the hearts of the Israelites saying, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means stubborn and rebellious. Four, Did I say I had three observations? Four, the Lord threatened to annihilate Israel and to start fresh with Moses. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. All of this, this exchange between the Lord and Moses up on the mountain concerning the sinfulness of Israel is to be viewed as a kind of test for Moses. And also... It is to be viewed as an invitation for Moses to intercede on behalf of Israel. And as we will see, it would be through this threat of righteous judgment and the faithful intercession of Moses that the marvelous grace of God would be shown forth. Will God's grace be shown forth? Yes. And it will be through this threat of righteous judgment and the faithful intercession of Moses that the marvelous grace of God would be shown forth, made manifest. What do I mean when I say this was a test for Moses? Well, consider again the words of the Lord, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. If you've been paying attention to the story that is being told in Genesis and Exodus, you will immediately recognize that this is out of sync with what the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised to make a great nation out of whom? Not Moses, but out of Abraham. He promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. At this point in the narrative, had that happened yet? We must say no, it had not yet happened. Uh, The people of Israel had just been redeemed from Egypt. They're in the wilderness now. They're heading towards the promised land, but they are not there yet. And the Lord had also promised to bless the nations of the earth through these descendants of Abraham. This means that the Messiah would emerge 
from Abraham's descendants. Again, I say these promises were not yet fulfilled. And we could see this as we read the narrative. Of course, the Lord knew all of this. But what would Moses say? I think that is the question. Would Moses be a faithful servant in God's house? What would Moses say? Would he go along with it and say, you know, Lord, that that proposition you have just made concerning annihilating this people and starting fresh with me sounds pretty good because this people has been a pain in the neck for me also. They've been very difficult. They are a stiff-necked people. They are a rebellious people. They're filled with all manner of wickedness. Let's go with that, O Lord. Why don't you start fresh with me? After all, I'm pretty good, you know. Would, Would Moses take that view? We'll soon find out. And what do I mean when I say that this was an invitation for Moses to intercede? Well, here I'm observing that within the scriptures, whenever the Lord reveals his intentions to pour out judgment on some people, to his prophets or to some other servant of his, it is an invitation to that person to intercede on behalf of that people. In this way, Amos, the prophet, was invited to intercede on behalf of Israel, asking the Lord to relent from his righteous judgment. You may read of that in Amos 7, verses 1 through 6. In this way, Abraham was invited to intercede on behalf of Sodom. Do you remember that story from Genesis 18, verses 22 and following? You remember how the Lord announced ahead of time his intention to pour out his wrath upon Sodom, and there Abraham faithfully interceded on behalf of this Gentile community. I I find that to be very interesting, by the way. I do not have the time to flesh it out. But Abraham was invited by God to intercede on behalf of Gentiles, on behalf of the nations. And Moses is here being invited to intercede on behalf of Israel in particular. In a moment, we will see that Moses, like Abraham before him, did very well. Verse 11 Moses implored the Lord his God. And he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is a very wonderful text here Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. And the way that he does it, the things that he says uh, to, to the Lord are very important. The end result being that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, it must be said that the Lord does not really relent or repent. You understand this, don't you? Uh, the Lord does not really relent or repent. For with him there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17 says. Moses himself says so. Moses himself says that the Lord does not relent or repent in Numbers 23.19. There he says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. We change our minds because we are human. God does not change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? 
Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so what are we to have, what, what are we to think here of this, this appearance of change in Exodus chapter 32? Well, we are to see that it appears as change from Moses' perspective. The Lord threatens to pour out his judgments. He tests Moses in this. He invites intercession. And in this way, through these means, the Lord relents from pouring out the judgments that he had threatened. In the decree of God, it was his decree, it was his determination to show Israel mercy all along. But he shows the mercy in this way and through these means so that we might perceive the mercy, you see. So that we might perceive the grace. What if the Lord did not uh, use these means, the threat of judgment, inviting the intercession of Moses, and then the relenting? What if he did not do this? We would not be able to perceive the Lord's mercy and grace, at least not with such sharpness. There is in this the appearance of repentance from the human perspective. But from the divine perspective, all of this, the threat, the intercession, and the relenting were the eternal and unchanging decree of God. So I might ask you, brothers and sisters, do our prayers change the eternal decree of God? Do our prayers change the mind of God? The answer is certainly not. But through prayer, we are changed. And more than this, God has determined to accomplish His eternal decree through our prayers, just as He did with Moses and the text under consideration. In this way, through these means, the Lord manifests His glory. In this way, the Lord manifests to us His grace and His mercy by using the means of intercession. Now let us briefly consider Moses' prayer, for it is truly marvelous. One, notice that Moses implored the Lord. That is a strong word. Moses made a strong and heartfelt plea to the Lord on behalf of Israel. Brothers and sisters, you and I are invited to come boldly before the throne of grace in Jesus' name, to bring our desires before Him, and to persistently entreat Him on behalf of ourselves and others as we submit ourselves to His sovereign will. Let us not squander that gift. We ought to implore the Lord to do this or that, to give us what we desire, uh, to accomplish His purposes in the world. And as we implore the Lord, we must submit ourselves to His sovereign will, always saying in the heart and with our lips, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Two, Moses reminded the Lord, or better yet, acknowledged, that it was the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt. It was not the work of Moses alone. Certainly it was not the work of that dumb, deaf, and impotent idol that Aaron made. It was the Lord who did it. As Moses said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? This is a beautiful thing that Moses does. The Lord said, Your people that you have brought out to Moses. And then Moses replies and says, No, it was you, O Lord. So Moses gives glory to God. In this moment, I think he is to be contrasted with, of course, the people of Israel and their idolatry here. Three, Moses expressed concern for the glory or reputation of the Lord amongst the nations. Why should the Egyptians say 
With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Isn't that an interesting argument that Moses makes? He implores the Lord in this way, the nations are watching. The nations are watching. And why should the Egyptians mock the people of Israel and even mock you, O Lord, that you brought them out in order to consume them? Show mercy, show grace, so that your name might be magnified amongst the nations, Moses expresses this concern for the reputation of the Lord amongst the nations. For, and I think this is so very important, Moses appealed for mercy, not on the basis of the covenant that the Lord had just entered into with Israel at Sinai, but on the basis of the promises that were made in the covenant that God transacted with Abraham long before. This is so crucial. Verse 12, Moses implores the Lord saying, Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then he says, Remember. So so Moses is is, is asking God to to remember something. Uh, God never forgets anything, of course. But remember. Remember what? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. I think this is marvelously important. The truth of the matter is this. Moses had no grounds to appeal to God for mercy and grace according to the terms of the covenant that the Lord had made with Israel at Sinai. Do you understand this? He had no grounds to appeal for mercy or grace according to the terms that God made with Israel there at Mount Sinai. That covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai was a covenant of works, and the people of Israel had broken that covenant already. They forfeited the blessings, therefore, and the curses of the covenant were owed to them. The Lord would have done no wrong to cast them off forever, according to the terms of that covenant made at Sinai. In fact, this truth is signified by the breaking of the tablets of the testimony at the base of the mountain. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and rightly this was righteous anger, rightly so. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I suppose we might think that this was an accident, you know. That Moses is running down the mountain uh, with Joshua at his side. He sees the people engaged in idolatrous worship, and he just gets so frazzled by it that he... He just kind of drops the stone, the stone tablets, and there they break by accident. I do not think that is the case. I think Moses threw them down intentionally. And I believe that he threw them down in a specific place, namely, right where the covenant had been confirmed with the people 40 days earlier at the base of the mountain. I believe he was in that spot. And the people probably saw him coming and they were watching. He took the the tablets of of testimony, the tablets that had the law of the covenant written on them by the finger of God. And he, he shattered them in that very place that the covenant was confirmed in order to say by this action, you have broken the terms of God's covenant already and here is what is owed to you, death. Do you remember the bloody, the the bloody uh, ceremony that was um, conducted when the covenant was confirmed? How blood was thrown Um, on on the pillars of stone and on the people and on the covenant itself 
in order to signify many things, one of them being what would happen if the covenant was broken. The wages of sin is what? It is death. And so by the breaking of those tablets, Moses, I think, was saying to the people, "You you have obliterated the covenant already. You have broken the terms of it. You deserve God's wrath. It was at this point that Moses courageously confronted Aaron and the people. Moses is to be viewed as a faithful servant in God's house, a courageous leader. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink. He scattered it in their water source, I think in that brook there that was present in that place. And so the people over time, they drank of that that water, and therefore they, they ingested this idol. This idol would have been ingested by the people. It would have also been excreted by them, which was the very fitting end to that detestable thing. Moses did also command that the priests put to death with the sword all who participated in this rebellion and would not repent. Indeed, the priests had this responsibility under the Old Covenant. Like Adam, they were to keep the temple of God and preserve the true worship of God, you see. And so Moses here commissions them in this way. They were to put the sword on their side and they were to go throughout the camp of Israel and put to death the idolatrous ones. I think we are to, uh, we are to um, notice that these were the ones who were idolatrous and unrepentant in the matter. I think in the New Covenant era, pastors and elders have the same responsibility They do not wield the physical sword, of course, but what do they wield? The Word of God. And along with the members of the church, they wield the keys of the kingdom and have the authority to welcome in and to shut out of God's kingdom and temple. God's temple and the worship of God is to be protected and preserved against all forms of idolatry. The people of God have this responsibility, but especially pastors and elders today and the priests who ministered under the Old Covenant. Now back to Moses' intercession. Moses appealed for mercy, not on the basis of the covenant that was made at Sinai, for there were no grounds for mercy or grace to be found there, for that covenant was a covenant of works. Instead, Moses appealed to God for mercy and grace on the basis of the unconditional promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel, your servants, Lord. Don't forget that you swore by your own self. We're to remember that, uh, that, that episode where Abraham fell into a deep sleep and he saw a vision. Carcasses were divided and it was the Lord alone who walked through the divided carcasses in order to confirm the covenant that he had made with Abraham. The promises were confirmed in that way. Do you remember considering that from the book of Genesis? Here, Moses is appealing to that covenant and to the unconditional promises that were made within it, uh, that the Lord would show mercy to Israel uh, in order to fulfill these unconditional promises previously made. If you wish, we may state the matter in these terms. Moses appealed not to the law, but to the gospel for mercy and grace. Moses appealed not to the law, but to the gospel for mercy and grace. And it is there that we read, and the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. Now after going down the mountain to deal with Aaron and Israel, He went back up. Verse 30 tells us that on the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I think the word atonement here is very significant. 
Uh, Moses knows that the people of Israel are deserving of the wrath of God. He knows that atonement must be made, and so he is willing to go up the mountain and to offer himself up to make atonement for the sins of the people. That is, in fact, what he does. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Isn't that interesting? Essentially, what Moses says to the Lord is, Please show mercy to this people. Do not blot them out. And if you will not show mercy to them, I I offer myself up as a substitute. Blot me out of the book that you have written. Take my life instead. Now many commentators equate this book that Moses refers to with the Lamb's book of life, which contains the names of God's elect. They surmise that names can be blotted out of this book that is the Lamb's book of life. I don't think I agree with that interpretation. I'm open, I'm open to be persuaded otherwise, but, but in my opinion, this book that Moses refers to is the book of the living. It is the book that contains a record of all who are alive on earth. And in particular, in this instance, it is those who are alive on earth in the kingdom of Israel. You know, kings keep books uh, making record of those living in their kingdom. And I think that is what is being referred to here. It is a reference to God's book. It is a reference to God's book containing all of the names of those alive on earth living in the kingdom of Israel at this time. And so when Moses said, but if you will not forgive their sin, please blot me out of your book that you have written, I think he was offering up his life as a substitute for theirs. This was his attempt to make atonement. But you'll notice that the Lord rejected Moses' proposal in part, saying, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I think that this book was a record of life on earth and not eternal life in heaven, as the Lamb's book of life is. It's supported by the fact that the Lord said He would blot those who were guilty out of this book, those guilty of idolatry. And he did this by sending a plague, according to verse 35. So the Lord did bring judgment upon the people. He did blot certain people out from amongst the nation of Israel. These were the ones who were guilty of the idolatry within Israel. But the Lord was merciful in that he did not cast off Israel entirely. Instead, he punished the unrepentant idolaters with precision. And in this way, the mercy of grace Mercy and grace of God were put on display. Did Israel deserve to die? Did they deserve to be cut off, to be disowned, to be divorced, to be blotted out? According to the terms of the old Mosaic covenant, they deserved that indeed. But God showed mercy to them. He showed mercy to them so that He might keep the promises that were made to Abraham previously. He showed mercy to them so that He might make this people into a great nation, bring them safely into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and so that he, through them, might bring the Messiah into the world. Those promises had to be kept, and for that reason, the Lord showed mercy to the nation of Israel, even under the Old Covenant, though they violated its terms from the very beginning. 
Lastly, and very briefly, I will make a few observations about the nature of the old Mosaic covenant. One, while it revealed God's law, you will notice that it did not renew the hearts and minds of the members to make them willing and able to obey. That should be very clear to all who read this text. Though the old Mosaic covenant did reveal God's law, it did not renew the mind, it did not renew the heart. What did the Lord say, and Moses also, about this people? They're, they're a stiff-necked people. They're a rebellious people. Idolatry was clearly in their hearts. And this was after the old Mosaic covenant had been confirmed. Did the old Mosaic covenant, the ratification of it, did it transform the mind of the people? Did it transform the hearts of the people to make them willing and able to obey the Lord? We look at Exodus chapter 32 and we must say we get the point. It didn't. Was God's law good? Yes, it was good. Well, what was the problem with the old Mosaic covenant? It was stated in that Romans 8 passage that we read just a bit ago in the introduction to this sermon. The problem with the old Mosaic covenant was not the law, for God's law is good. The problem was the people. The problem was the flesh. The flesh was still corrupted and weak. The old Mosaic covenant had no way to take care of that problem. But all who are partakers of the new covenant have God's law written, not on stone, not on parchment, but where? Within them. That is what Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 makes so clear. This is one of the the things about the, the new covenant that makes it new and distinct and different from the old. All who are partakers of the new covenant have God's law within them written, not on stone, but on their hearts. Two, While the old Mosaic covenant revealed God's law, it could not provide for the forgiveness of sins before God. And this is why Moses had to appeal to the promises previously made to to Abraham for mercy. God was indeed gracious to Israel under the old Mosaic covenant, but not because of the terms of that covenant, but for the sake of the covenant of grace, which was promised to Adam and to Abraham long before. Three, under the old Mosaic covenant... And through the law that was given to Israel in those days, sin would be magnified. And the need for a Savior would be made much more apparent. Moses was not that Savior. Aaron was not that Savior. No, instead the Savior was still yet to come. Jesus Christ is His name. And He would be the one who would lay down His life to make atonement for the sins of His people. Moses could not offer up his life as atonement for the sins of the people, for he was not the Messiah, but the Messiah would be brought into the world through this nation and through this covenant of which Moses was a mediator. The Messiah is Jesus Christ, the Lord. I think this is very significant to recognize that under the old Mosaic covenant, sin would be magnified. I said at the beginning of this sermon that this story is, is almost unbelievable. It's just so astonishing to see that men and women would be so wicked and rebellious against God after all that He had done for them. Well, here we see one instance of the magnification of sin and of our need for a Savior who would lay down His life to atone for the sins of His people. Brothers and sisters, we are members of the new covenant ratified not with the blood of bulls and goats, but in Christ's blood, if we have faith in Him. And as partakers of this new covenant, we do have new minds and new hearts through the regenerating power 
of the Holy Spirit. By this work of the Holy Spirit, the moral law of God, which was written on stone in the days of Moses, is written upon our hearts to make us willing and able to do what God has commanded of us. This is why Christ has said, you will know them by their fruits. This is because those who belong to Christ under this new covenant will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're able to do this because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we do confess that corruptions remain within us. This is our experience under the new covenant. We have renewed hearts, renewed minds. Yes, we have this desire to obey God, and when we disobey Him, the Spirit of God convicts us so that we turn from our sin, but the flesh wars against the Spirit. We are often tempted by the world, the devil, and even the corruptions that remain in the flesh. By God's grace, let us be sure, brothers and sisters, to keep our hearts pure. Let us flee from evil and cling to what is good. Let us put to death what is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these we too once walked when we were living in them, but now we must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put these on, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That is Colossians 3, 5 through 17. Why have I concluded the sermon with a reading from Colossians 3, 5 through 17? Because here we have an exhortation from the apostle as to how we are to live now under the new covenant. We're to live according to the reality of the new heart that is within us. We have been regenerated by the word of God and by the spirit of God, but corruptions remain. Therefore, we must pursue holiness. We must Flee all that is evil, including covetousness, which is idolatry. We must put off the old self. We must put on the new in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us in these things so that we might bring honor to him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage in Exodus chapter 32, which is indeed shocking to us. We thank you for the wake-up call. We thank you for the reality check, uh, both as it pertains to the sinfulness of man, uh, the the realities and limitations of the old Mosaic Covenant, uh, but especially we thank you for your grace revealed here. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forbearance. Uh, the, the grace that you show to Israel under the old covenant is truly marvelous, but we know that you have done it, that you bore with their rebellion, with their stiff-necked, uh, arrogant hearts in order to bring the Messiah into the world through them. We thank you, O God, for Christ Jesus crucified and risen. 
We thank you also for this new covenant wherein we receive so many blessings, one of them being regeneration. God, we pray that you would sanctify us further as your people, that we would put to death the flesh and walk by the Spirit more and more to the honor of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.